Good evening. Welcome to Beijing Diary. This is Eric in Beijing. Back in the spring of 2016, I gave a lecture at my university on the American Civil War. And at the time, I had uh, I thought about putting online, and Mom had asked to to hear it. And uh, but then I, I I was busy with some other classes I was teaching, and then in the spring of 2017, I left my university because they merged uh, with another university. Way down the south end of the city, and I live、uh, in a village up in the western hills, northwestern hills. So I said, "Well, it was、uh, time to、uh, get this thing together." And I thought, "Well, this is going to be really, really boring for everybody," but oh well. But then those riots、uh, took place in、uh, Charlottesville, and people are talking about tearing down statues of Robert E. Lee. And I'm thinking, "What in the world is going on?" So then I begin to think maybe there really is a need to, for people to look at this,、uh, at this history.、Uh, so I started working on it, and I'm finally getting around to, to putting it up.、Uh, the lecture got a little bit uh, long. Uh, Mr. Gal had、uh, told me an hour and a half, so I thought, well, okay, 90 minutes, one slide for each minute, and.、Uh, That's what I was thinking, but it got to be a little bit much, and then we were、uh, we were late. So、uh, the 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 lady who was supposed to open the classroom for us was something like a half hour, forty minutes late. So I was talking pretty fast, which is a little bit unfair to、uh, the non-English majors. The English majors, I don't feel too bad for them. They 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 need that challenge, but the non-English majors, I felt a little sorry for them, but. Actually, it was a blessing in disguise because、uh, it would have taken a lot longer if I had talked slowly. And you can see at the beginning,、uh, you can hear、uh, Mr. Gao ask them if they want, they need、uh, interpretation, and I just blew it off. And it's a good thing because a lecture wouldn't have happened if、uh, if we'd had to do that.、Uh, anyway, uh, I will uh, let you、uh, hear the lecture, and then I'll come back at the end and、uh, and talk about a few things、uh, because there's. So much to talk about, and so much that I didn't get to explain. For example, I mentioned in there that uh, uh, Canada doesn't have a Senate. Well, if you say that to someone from Canada, they'll say yes, we do. But、uh, it doesn't have a Senate in the sense that America does.、Uh, it's a it's a parliamentary system. So the way I say it is, they have a House of Lords that they call a Senate. And why that's significant is that uh, both. Uh, England and Canada have the same situation. The, the primary legislative body is the House of Commons, which is apportioned by population. But the United States has a Senate that is appointed, or that is not appointed, that is elected by region. So, for example, North Dakota, what has it got now? About seven hundred thousand people. I don't know if that's even enough for one representative, but one is the minimum. So they've got one representative in Congress, but two senators. New York, with all its people, two senators. California, with all its people, two senators. So, in the House of Representatives, small states like North Dakota are really underrepresented. Their, their their vote doesn't count for much unless their representative is on an important committee or something, or chairman of a committee. Uh, but uh, in the Senate, they're greatly overrepresented, and so this is, has has balanced the feeling of.、Uh, <clears throat> People from rural states that they, their their voice doesn't count.、Uh, now, why is that important? Because that's why the South seceded. 
they felt that they had become disenfranchised, that their vote didn't count for anything. And so, you know, in the recent election, that really got my attention because that uh, issue came up again and people are talking about abolishing the Electoral College. Well, in the recent election, people from California, some people from California felt that their votes were uh, didn't count, they were disenfranchised. But if you abolish the Electoral College, then the people from the farm states will be essentially disenfranchised. So it's a very important issue. Anyway, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and roll the tape and then uh, we'll come back uh, at the end and uh, I'll have some more things to say about it. Okay, now, here are the key elements. Abraham Lincoln won the election of 1860. This was a four-way race. Usually in American elections it's uh, between two candidates at the end. You know, the, there's what we call a primary election. Right now they're having the primary elections in America. The, Amer the Republicans are choosing their candidate, the Democrats are choosing their candidate. When they finish that, those two will go against each other. Yes. But in the election of 1860, it was very complicated. It was a four-way race. There were four candidates. And Abraham Lincoln had the support from the northern part of the country, so he got uh, the majority of the electoral votes. Seven states seceded between his election and his inauguration. Let's see if I can get that on. Uh, there is another button on the side of this desk. On the side, the oh. right side. This here? The upper end, yes. Swift that and then the press button of my phone. Oh, okay. Yes. All right, can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> I guess you can hear me. All right. So then seven states seceded between his election and his inauguration. Because as soon as he was elected, they said, okay, we're out of here. They didn't like Lincoln. And <laughs> oh yeah, they're 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 in good shape. They've got to, they've got to be able to listen to English. Uh, his inauguration was in March of 1861, and then the Confederate forces fired on Fort Sumter. Fort Sumter is in South Carolina. South Carolina is in the South, and Fort Sumter is a is a Union fort. It's a fort for the for the army. And the South said, we seceded, we're not part of America anymore, so get that fort out of here. And uh, they fired on it, which was a mistake because it justified the North attacking them. In my opinion, it was a mistake. Then four additional states joined the Confederacy. Now, I need to go back a little bit in history. Uh, because when America was started, they signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776. And then they organized the, the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation were uh, a loose, it's sort of a loose uh, arrangement for them to work together, but not a strong central government. Their cooperation was voluntary, and it didn't work very well. Okay, so very weak central government. What happens when you have a weak central government? The central government says, okay, we need to have you pay this much taxes, you pay this much taxes, and the states say, no. We have our own things we want to pay for. You know, it's really, really difficult. You want to make an agreement with a foreign government? You have to ask all of the individual states, you know, if they want to agree to it. So it just uh, is very, very ineffective. You have to have a central government in order for to have some stability in society. 
but you also have to have some feeling on the local level that there's some level of self-determination for local people so that they don't feel like they have no voice in the way things are going. It's difficult to maintain that balance and America has struggled with this throughout its history. Every country struggles with it. Even Canada, you know, Canada has no Senate. So Canada, everything is by population. The provinces in the West, they have no people. In the East, Toronto, you know, they have lots of people. So sometimes the Alberta, you know, those provinces, they say, our vote doesn't count. And when I was going to graduate school in Canada, there were some people in the, uh, in the Alberta legislature that were actually uh, talking about seceding. They, they won't, but, but, but Quebec has talked about seceding, has actually had votes on secession several times. <coughs> Very hard to conduct foreign policy, I already mentioned that, you know, you have to have permission from all the different colonies. So it's very hard to defend your country if you're attacked. Now, the reason I went through this is because when the South pulled out of the Union, they were obviously trying to go back to this idea. It was called the Confederate States of America. They're going back to the Confederation. To me, it was a ridiculous thing to do. So I, if I were talking to him, I'd say, didn't you learn the hit lesson of history? You want to try this experiment again? So anyway, after the Articles of Confederation, uh, Alexander Hamilton pushed for a strong central government. Alexander Hamilton was uh, really uh, largely uh, influential in establishing the money system in America, the banking system. So a uh, parallel to Alexander Hamilton in China, modern China, would be uh, uh, Zhu Rongji, who reformed the banking system under Chiang Zemin, right? Okay. Constitutional Convention was held in 1787 and produced a constitution which was ratified and became the supreme law of the land in 1789. 1789 is when the constitution was basically the law of the land. And so, from 1789 until 1860, they had this experience of the Constitution, and now the Southerners are saying, no, we don't want it, we want to go back to a confederation. And they had all the same problems that the United States had with the original confederation, the South had with their confederacy. The Constitution tried to balance the power of the central government with the powers reserved to individual states. Okay, I already talked about that. Uh, it, it's, and that's, that's still an argument today because the Supreme Court has given itself the right to basically annul any state law that they don't like. Right? Americans talk about rule of law, but America does not really have rule of law in strictest sense. Judges have a lot of power in America. In my opinion, the judges in America have too much power in China, they have too little power. It's opposite extremes. In China, the body that has the same, seems to have the same role as the, as the Supreme Court is the, uh, the political bureau. You know, there's seven or eight guys that run the country. Obviously, they don't make all the laws, but they can dispense with it one if they don't like it. And the Supreme Court has very much of that function in America. So, as I said, it was a four-way race. No votes for Lincoln in any southern state. 
The Southerners really did not like Lincoln. The Southerners felt like they didn't have a voice. Now, so here's the election of 1860. You can see where the pink is Lincoln. See, these are electoral votes. America has electoral college. So if New York, you know, there's a lot of people in New York, so they have more votes than uh, Minnesota and so on. So you can see that in the industrial area, you know, the Republicans controlled that. And so in America, if you control the population centers, that pretty much gives you the vote in the electoral college. By the way, this is the opposite of China. And in the China's civil war, the uh, communists controlled the countryside, the Kuomintang controlled the cities, and uh, China's a peasant culture, you know. So that doesn't work in China. You can't look at it the same way. You know, Mao was very careful about it. He always told people, never steal from the peasants. And they treated the, the peasants very well, right? So they, they won. But in America, it's, it's, it's different. So you see a big contrast there. Now, I say power elite. The abolitionists really didn't have much power, although there were, uh, there were abolitionists in Congress, like Thaddeus Stevens and so on. But the abolitionists had a lot of influence. They had a lot of influence in society. The moderates did not like slavery, but they didn't believe in forcing people to give up their slaves. Because the slaves are property. So they felt, you know, the government cannot take your property away. The pro-slavery candidates basically accepted slavery. And the most uh, well-known in the North was Stephen Douglas. Now, Lincoln is in the middle. He was a moderate. So he did not like slavery, but he didn't believe in forcing the South to give them up. So the abolitionists didn't like him. They said he should focus on slavery, but he was focusing on the Union. And uh, the, the South, the people who wanted slavery, they also didn't like him. Because they knew that he wanted to, uh, if you look at this map again, Lincoln's idea was, we will not take your slaves away, but when one of these territories becomes a state, that will be free. Right? So the South looked at this and said, well, eventually all the northern states will be free, all the territories will become states, and they'll be free, and it'll just be a small area. So they saw their institution slowly dying, and they were basically right. So Abraham Lincoln exceeded the abolitionists' highest goals. They didn't trust him, because they said he didn't put enough emphasis on fighting slavery, but in fact, he did more than they uh, ever could have dreamed. And the result of his policy was beyond the worst fears of the Southerners, because their institution was completely destroyed. Before California, there was an equal number of slave states and non-slave states. But California was admitted as a, a free state. I guess they had one slave senator or something. Anyway, they so that started to make the Southerners think the non-slave states are becoming a majority. And they knew that Abraham Lincoln did not like slavery. They knew that. And uh, he didn't want to force the slave owners to give, as I said, he, he, exposed, he opposed extending it. 
So after his election, they feared that slavery had no future. And this is what Abraham Lincoln said in 1858 in a speech. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a master at saying a lot in very few words. So look at this, this is important. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become lawful in all the states, old as well as new. So he was saying, eventually, America will either be all slave or all free. So when the Southerners heard that, they said, well, he wants to make it all free. <laughs> so, you know, their reason for not trusting him was based on his own speech, his own words. Okay, this is the divided states of America, 1861. Blue is the Union states. Okay, the red, that's the Confederacy. They seceded from the Union. And then these states uh, seceded afterwards, uh, a little while later. And these states, the yellow states, they are states that had slaves, but they didn't want to join the Confederacy. They didn't secede. They stayed in the Union, but they, they had slaves. Here's Harry Beecher Stowe. You know who Harry Beecher Stowe is? She wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now that book you really must read if you want to have any understanding of the Civil War. That's the most important book because that's the, really the book that created the Civil War. She said, if I were a man I would do something about slavery. <laughs> She was frustrated, you know, with all these men arguing about it. Why doesn't somebody do something? Well, she did more than all of them put together when she wrote that book. That is the most important book. So she was welcomed to the White House, and President Lincoln said, So this is the lady who wrote the book that made this great war. Here's Uncle Tom's Cabin. First year it sold 300,000 copies in U.S. and a million in Britain. Best-selling book in the 19th century next to the Bible. You know, when she wrote this book, she was thinking, well, I hope I can make enough money to buy a dress. <laughs> this became a runaway bestseller. How many of you have read this, Uncle Tom's Cabin? You really should read it, and, and if possible, read it in English. Now, here's the thing about Uncle Tom's Cabin. This is why it was so important. Before that book, the Northerners said slavery is a Southern problem. But after that book, they said slavery is everyone's problem. Now, the reason is this. Before they read that book, they said, you know, I don't want to have slaves. I don't like slavery. But if they want to have slaves, that's their decision. I shouldn't make that decision for them. But after they read that book, they said, no, this is wrong. 
It's not right for me to have slaves. It's not right for you to have slaves. It's not right for anyone to have slaves. It's not right to take a human being and treat them like an animal. It's not right to breed people like animals and sell their children. So she exposed what slavery actually was to people who just hadn't thought about it that much. And the whole thinking of the country changed as a result of that book. The Fugitive Slave Law is a law that uh, required everyone to return the slaves if the slave ran away. So sometimes when the slaves went to the north, the northerners would protect them. And so as a result of trying to prevent a war, they came up with this compromise, uh, compromise of 1850, and the Fugitive Slave Law was part of that. If we assure the slaves, uh, the southerners, that we will return their slaves, maybe they will not secede. So now, if the slaves want to get away, they cannot just run to Ohio, you know, they have to go to Canada. Now, some people ignored the Fugitive Slave Law, but it did change things definitely changed things. But it was harder for the slaves to get freedom, but it also made northerners more determined to end slavery. So they weren't as likely to put up with slavery as they would be if they had uh, without that. Now, what is was secession legal? That's the first thing. Is it legal for states to secede? Well, what do you think? Is it legal? Here's the thing. What is a state? You see, the word state means country. It doesn't mean province. So America needed to have this argument to decide what, what kind of government they're going to have. United States of America, when the United States was founded, United States of America actually meant United Countries of America, right? State doesn't mean province. It means countries. It means country. It's not a nation. It's, it's the nation, you know. It's like Europe. Germany is a country. Britain is a country. France is a country. And they're united in whatever you want to call it. But that's what America was. So, if they're countries, then they don't need to secede, they're independent. So, when they said free and independent states, they weren't just talking about being independent from Britain, they were talking about being independent from each other. And so, at some point, they had to establish what they were going to be. And it didn't work for them to be 13 independent countries. So was secession legal? It depends on how you define state. So ultimately, in, in my opinion, it was not a question of legality. It was a question of having a decision about what the country was going to be. So most people thought of the Union as a voluntary relationship. And Southern leaders thought of the United States as a contract between states. Well, in fact, everybody originally thought of the United States as a contract between states. That's what it was. Abraham Lincoln insisted once a state joined the Union, it could not leave. But that's not really what he believed originally. (laughs) 
So again, I, I, I don't think the Civil War was really so much a legal issue. It was a question of a country deciding which way are we going to go. And by the way, even though the Civil War was very painful, it has spared America a lot of conflicts after that. In Britain, they just had an election. Scotland voting whether they should leave. Canada, several times they've had an election. You know, uh, Quebec voting whether they want to leave Canada. In America, nothing like this since the end of the Civil War. This is Winfield Scott. He's the commander of the Union forces. Now, Winfield Scott did not last very long in the Civil War. He was a very old man, and he left shortly after it started. He was not really significant throughout the Civil War, but he was very important at the beginning of the Civil War because he controlled Washington, D.C. <laughs> and so you can imagine Lincoln is on the train going to Washington, and he doesn't even know if Washington, D.C. is going to be part of America when he gets there. <laughs> because it's right next to Virginia, which is one of the southern states. So he contacted Winfield Scott, and interestingly enough, Winfield Scott was from Virginia. But fortunately, Winfield Scott was very loyal. He was fiercely loyal. <laughs> and he assured Lincoln there'd be no issue. So thanks to Winfield Scott, Lincoln was established securely as the President of the United States. He was a common man. He was not from West Point. West Point is the military academy. All the soldiers go to West Point. That's where they get their education. He was from Virginia, but he remained loyal. And he offered the command of Union forces to Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was also from Virginia and a very capable officer. So, Winfield Scott was, was loyal. He was dependable. And most people thought of the Union as a voluntary relationship, as I said before. Lincoln's first inaugural address. I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. So I'm not going to interfere with slavery where it is. The abolitionists didn't like this. But Lincoln was a moderate. You know, he wasn't going to take slaves away from people. But they still didn't like it. The Southerners still didn't like it because they knew the slavery is only in the southern states. Eventually it will be threatened. Governor Pickens of South Carolina demanded surrender of, of the uh, Fort Sumter. And so the Confederates opened fire on April 12, 1861, and that's where the war started. They lost that battle, but it turned out to be a victory, actually, because it justified their attack. This is Robert E. Lee. Now, Robert E. Lee was a man of uh, duty and honor. He was from Virginia, and Winfield Scott wanted him to command the Union forces. Robert E. Lee had a conflict. He didn't like slavery. He really didn't like it. He didn't like the institution. He wanted to give it up. So he didn't want, and he also didn't want the southern states to secede. He thought that was very stupid. But he was from Virginia. He said, 
I have a duty to protect my hometown. So what do you do if you're in this situation? You believe the cause of the South is wrong. You believe slavery is wrong. You believe it's foolish for them to secede. But he said, I cannot fight against my home state. Now, it's interesting to note this. Winfield Scott and Robert E. Lee were both from Virginia. Winfield Scott stayed with the Union because he was loyal to the country. Robert E. Lee left the Union because he was loyal to his state. Now you see the difference? It's a view of what a country is. Is the country America or is the country Virginia and then South Carolina? You know, that's a very, very important question. And the Civil War resolved that question. It didn't completely solve the problem of balance between a federal government and the state's rights, but because uh, that's, that's not resolved yet, we still argue about it. But it, it did clear up where the country, what the, what, what the country was. So Lee said, I just want to be neutral. And Winfield Scott said, we don't want any half-hearted people. You have to be with us or you're against us. And so Lee resigned. He said, I cannot raise my hand against my birthplace, my home, my children. He resigned from the U.S. Army on April 20th. That's 19, uh, 18, uh, 1861. If I look upon secession as anarchy, if I owned, I look upon secession as anarchy. You know what anarchy means? Overthrowing government. If I owned the four millions of slaves in the South, I would sacrifice them all for the Union. But how can I draw my sword upon Virginia? <laughs> this is Lee's problem. Okay. First battle of the Bull Run was south, 20, I think south or south of Washington. And the Union Army was very badly defeated. Thomas Jackson was a southern general. A little crazy, but he was a very brave soldier, very brave, brave general, very courageous person. And and the thing that I that you'll start to see, and I'm going to be sort of reiterating as we go through this, the Union um, they had a tough time finding the right commander. The right commander would have been the ideal person would have been Robert E. Lee, but he went south, so. They started with these others, and uh, none of them could really work up the nerve to fight. That's one of the main reasons the Civil War took so long, because the Union Army did not have strong leadership at the top. So George McClellan took over after McDowell, after the Union was, Army was defeated, but he was confident on the outside, but you know, when he thought about, I'm here and Lee is over there, Lee is very respected, you know, a very respected officer. So McClellan keep, kept asking for more and more troops, more and more soldiers to build up his army, but he wouldn't do anything. <laughs> now he built up a big army, but just wouldn't move. So it was very frustrating for Lincoln. Lincoln said, sending armies to McClellan is like shoveling flies across a barnyard. 
give the troops and they don't go anywhere. But this is a repeated problem in the north. They couldn't find the right... There's McClellan. Now, Ulysses Grant. Ulysses Grant was interesting. His father was a tanner. You know what a tanner is? A tanner is someone who makes leather out of animal skins. Like they'll take a cow and they pull the leather, the skin off, and then they have to treat the leather. And uh, Grant was supposed to follow the trade of his father, but he couldn't because he was hemophobic. Hemophobic means afraid of blood. He couldn't stand the sight of blood. <laughs> so uh, he couldn't be a tanner. Now, his father sent him to West Point because he didn't know what else to do with him. <laughs> and Grant was very different from Lee. Lee was a very refined officer. His father was a military officer, fought in the Revolutionary War. He was the son of uh, Light Horse Harry. But Grant, you know, he had no particular motivation to be a soldier. But uh, his father thought, well, that's better than, than nothing. And interestingly enough, when he started to get involved in the Civil War, he was just a very unimportant officer at the beginning, but every time they gave him something to do, he won. <laughs> he kept winning. So the guy that looked like he wasn't really anybody special became the commander of all the, the army at the end. Very, very interesting. He rose by his skill and his uh, determination. This is Willie Lincoln, Lincoln's little boy. He was uh, a little naughty, but uh, very friendly, very friendly. You know, he was just a very likable boy. Everybody liked him, Willie and Tad. He became sick with typhoid fever because of water from the Potomac River. In the White House they took the water from the Potomac River and apparently they didn't boil it. You know, you take water out of a river, you should boil it before you drink it. Right? <laughs> we know that now. So he got very sick. And uh, February 20th, 1862, Willie died. And his parents were devastated. Very, very sad. Lincoln said, my poor boy, he was too good for this earth. God has called him home. I know that he is much better off in heaven, but then we loved him so much. It's hard, hard to have him die. This had a big impact on Lincoln and his thinking as he was going through the war. It's a deep sorrow. One of the slaves was watching this. She watched him bury his head in his hands, his tall frame convulsed with emotion. At the foot of the bed, she stood in silent, awestricken wonder, marveling that so rugged a man could be so moved. I shall never forget those solemn moments, genius and greatness weeping over love's idol lost. President Lincoln then walked down the hall to his secretary's office. He startled the half-dozing secretary with the news. Well, Nicolay, my boy is gone. 
he's actually gone. Nikolay recalled seeing his boss burst into tears before entering his own office. He was really moved by this experience. Now they had a funeral for Willie and uh, those of you who are interested in uh, speech contests should pay good attention to this sermon because it's a very, very beautiful, beautiful sermon. It is well for us and very comforting on such an occasion as this to get a clear and scriptural view of the providence of God. His kingdom ruleth over all. All those events which in any wise affect our condition and happiness are in his hands and at his disposal. Disease and death are his messengers. They go forth at his bidding. And their fear for work is limited or extended according to the good pleasure of his will. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without his direction, much less any one of the human family. For we are more value than many sparrows. We may be sure, therefore, bereaved parents and all the children of sorrow may be sure that their affliction has not come forth of the dust nor has their trouble sprung out of the ground. It is the well-ordered procedure of their father and their God. So trying to uh, offer some comfort to the people who had lost this precious little boy. A mysterious dealing they may consider it but still it is his dealing and while they mourn he is saying to them as the Lord Jesus once said to his disciples what I do you do not know now, but you shall know hereafter. What we need in the hour of trial and what we should seek by earnest prayer is confidence in him who sees the end from the beginning and does all things well. It's not easy to lose someone that you love, right? And some of you sitting here know personally what that feels like. The government official's wife said, the White House is sad and still, for its joy and light have fled with little Willie. He was a very bright child, remarkably precocious for his age, and had endeared himself to everyone who knew him. Lincoln did not return to work for three weeks, and his wife was so distraught that uh, Lincoln feared for her sanity. Several months later, he had an opportunity to give comfort to another person who was grieving. He heard about a young lady whose father had died. Now he had known this man and he heard that his daughter was really, really depressed. Her father died. She couldn't do anything. She didn't want to eat. You know, she just didn't know how to deal with this grief. So Abraham Lincoln wrote her a letter. Here's his letter to Fanny McCullough. Dear family, it is with deep grief that I learn of the death of your kind and brave father, and especially that it is affecting your young heart beyond what is common in such cases. In this sad world of ours, sorrow comes to all, and to the young it comes with the bitterest agony, because it takes them unawares. The older have learned to ever expect it. I am anxious to afford some alleviation of your present distress. Perfect relief is not possible except with time. You cannot now realize that you will ever feel better. Is it not so? That's the way it is, right? And especially with young people, something happens and they feel like, I'm never going to be happy again. There's a, a, a young man or a young lady uh, right over the, on the other side of the highway, uh, Minzadashwe, last week or the week before, committed suicide. I heard the graduate student told me. I don't know what happened. Maybe the boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with them. But you know, when this happens, 
It's not the end of the world, right? But you know, if you're young and you, you haven't been through this before, that's the feeling you have. I'm never going to be happy again. Right? And so what he's saying is, you feel this. You cannot now realize that you will ever feel better. And yet it's a mistake. You are sure to be happy again. To know this, which is certainly true, will make you some less miserable now. I have had experience enough to know what I say, and you need only to believe it to feel better at once. The memory of your dear father, instead of an agony, will yet be a sad, sweet feeling in your heart of a purer and holier sort than you have known before. Please present my kind regards to your afflicted mother, your sincere friend, A. Lincoln. He wrote this just a few months after his own son had died. He was still feeling the pain of his own sorrow, but he wanted to encourage this young lady, go on living. <laughs> and you know, she read this letter and it, it really encouraged her. And she actually lived to be an old woman. She lived until 1920, I think, you know. So this letter really, uh, really helped her. Now, monitoring the Merrimack. This battle is not so important strategically for the Civil War, but it's very interesting and influential in history. The Merrimack was a southern ship that was covered, you know, ironclad. It was covered with steel. You know, they were experimenting with this idea. And it, and it destroyed two wooden ships on the Union side. So the next day they were going to have a battle and the Merrimack was going to come back and attack. But then the Union uh, Navy brought out their own ironclad ship and fought against the Merrimack and they kept fighting against each other for three hours and neither one of them could make any progress against the other so it was a finally a draw and they quit. Now who won? Well actually neither one of them won but I guess you could say the Union won because the South was trying to destroy a blockade. Do you know what a blockade is? Blockade is when they cover the coastline so that no ships can go in and out. And so the South failed to uh, destroy that blockade. But the, the importance of this battle is England was watching this, and France was watching this. And when they saw this, they said, okay, that's it. No more wooden ships. That was the end of wooden ships in navies. Because a wooden ship against an ironclad ship, no contest. So that really scared uh, other countries. It didn't really affect the strategy of the Civil War that much, except that it allowed the blockade to stay in force, but it uh, changed history. So no more wooden ships after that. Now, this is your, uh, Abraham Lincoln's letter to Horace Greeley. By the way, you can go to the National Library right over here and get the papers of Abraham Lincoln. It's really amazing to read his legal arguments. He was a master of, he was completely self-educated. Maybe went to school three months in his life. He taught himself elementary school, taught himself middle school, high school. He taught himself but he was very well educated and uh, 
very, very good legal thinker. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could do it, to, could at the same time save slavery, I do not agree with them. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or to destroy slavery. Okay, so you know what's important to him, right? That's why the abolitionists didn't like him. The abolitionists had one goal. That's why they're called abolitionists. Abolish slavery. <laughs> if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. I shall do less whenever I shall believe that I am doing what I am doing hurts the cause, and I shall do more whenever I shall believe doing more will help the cause. I shall try to correct errors when shown to be errors, and I shall adopt new views so fast as they shall appear to be true views. This is an interesting statement. I shall adopt new views so fast as they shall appear to be true views. Lincoln was able to have his thinking changed if he could be convinced that the new idea was right. And Abraham Lincoln's thinking changed in the Civil War. And it was already changing even when he wrote this letter. Now, Battle of Shiloh, more soldiers killed than all previous wars combined. April 6 and 7, 1862. Second Battle of Bull Run, 75,000 Union troops under General John Pope are defeated by 55,000 Confederates. That was a bad defeat. So the Confederates are poised to invade Washington, D.C., because Bull Run is 25 miles from Washington. Now Lincoln is really starting to think seriously. You see, he has all the time, as you can see in that letter to Horace Greeley, he said, what's important to me is the Union. He didn't like slavery, but he's not going to sacrifice the Union for slavery. But somehow in this process, you know, through the death of his son, this tragedy and this defeat, his, the inability to win, somebody asked him, do you think God is on our side or on their side? And Lincoln said, I'm not worried about God being on our side because God is on, always on the side of what's right. But I'm concerned that we are on God's side. <laughs> so this is what is happening in Lincoln's mind. You know, He's thinking, if I want God to pay attention to what's important to me, which is the Union. I need to pay attention to what's important to God, which is the bondage of slavery. That was is what is going through his mind and his heart. Now, actually, you know, God is much bigger than us. He's concerned about all of it, <laughs> right? But this is what Lincoln was struggling with. So he made a covenant with God. He said, if you allow us to drive the Confederates out of Maryland, I will free the slaves. Now, freeing the slaves was very controversial because most of the people were moderates, you know. They didn't like slavery, but not take them away from the people who already have them. 
Lincoln's, Lincoln's letter to Greeley expresses the priorities he had had for some time. It was written after the Battle of Shiloh, but before the Second Battle of Bull Run. But after the Second Battle of Bull Run, you know, 25 miles from Washington and they lost. That was very frightening. He came to believe that he want, if we want God to respond to our priorities, we need to pay attention to his prayers. So, it was called the Battle of Antietam, or Sharpsburg, if you're from the south. September 17, 1862, bloodiest day in American military history. Thousands and thousands of soldiers died one day. It be, could be called a draw because neither side surrendered to the other, but Lee did pull back. So it ended up being a tactical win for the North, and Lincoln said, okay, I'm going to free the slaves. Uh, Kismia, uh, it's here, the Lee, the same one we mentioned, who uh, shifted his position from Robert north to the south. Right? Exactly. Robert E. Lee. Robert e. Lee. Yes. Yes. You know, he was a very, very gifted officer. Amazing commander. Yeah, I can't remember exactly when he re pulled out of it, but uh, he was not. You know, Winfield Scott was the. He was over the military officers. He wasn't actually commanding action in the field. But he was in charge of choosing the commanders. Okay, so he... What's that? Yes, that was his function. But, uh, so he, he uh, appointed McClellan. And McClellan was, you know, the guy who was kind of arrogant, but he never really could actually do anything. But in the Battle of Antietam, he gathered all these soldiers. He had so many soldiers by this time that he was able to push forward and stop Lee from advancing. And that was very significant. So here's the first part of the Emancipation Proclamation. That on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or de designated part of the state, the people whereof shall be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Now, this is interesting. I had a professor in college one time. He said he freed the slaves where he couldn't and he didn't free the slaves where he could. Well, that's what it looks like because he said the people whereof shall be in rebellion against the United States. In other words, he freed the slaves in the southern states, but he didn't free the slaves in Missouri and Kentucky. You know, they decided to stay with the Union, right? Those slaves were not set free. Well, there are two reasons for that. Number one, they're fighting with the Union, you know. He's not going to destroy their property while they're being loyal to the country. But the other reason is, in America, the president cannot go to individual people and take their property away. Property is protected by the Constitution, and slaves were property. In the states where they had slavery, slaves were property. So, did he really have the legal authority to free slaves anywhere? You know, legal, Lincoln was a very, very smart lawyer. And he probably knew that this proclamation didn't really have any weight. You know, what good is a law if you can't enforce it? But it was very, very important. Because he said, those slaves are now free, which means 
if the states are conquered, brought back to the Union, they're not going to be slave states anymore. That made the Southerners very angry, but it encouraged the abolitionists. It was a very, very clever thing to do, and it put Lincoln on the moral high ground. Now, McClellan replaced by Burnside, Burnside by Hooker. McClellan was replaced because when Lee, Lee and McClellan are here at the Battle of Antietam, and McClellan did a good job of repelling him, but when Lee turned around, McClellan should have followed him. He might have wiped out his army. And, you know, one of the greatest mistakes in warfare is failure to press your advantage. And the Union officers made this mistake over and over again. And that's why the war took so long. So General Grant is placed in charge of the Army of the West in January of 1863. And Stonewall Jackson died. He was Stonewall Jackson is the one at the first Battle of Bull Run, the southern officer. Friendly fire, we call it friendly fire. Friendly fire means accidentally killed by his own men. It's not killed by the enemy, he's accidentally killed by his own men. His last words, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Stonewall Jackson was a very devout uh, religious uh, very godly man and uh, actually there's a guy, a warlord in China who reminds me of Stonewall Jackson. The, uh, they called him the Christian General. He was from... Yeah, yeah uh, his name is Feng, Feng Yuxiang. Yeah, he, um, he died in a ship, on a fire on a ship, I guess. But anyway, he, he was called, they called him the Christian General. He was sort of like uh, Jackson, always preaching to his soldiers and so on. Anyway, there is Stonewall Jackson. A very uh, kind person, you know. Very kind to his men. He was a very strict officer, but very kind to his men. One time, they were tired and they'd been marching all day and they were, everybody was exhausted. So they're all going to their tents and they're thinking, you know, every soldier is afraid that they're going to be called to be on the guard duty, you know. They're called to be on guard duty. They have to stay up all night to watch. And, uh, but, you know, they all went to bed and got up the next morning and they heard this loud voice. He's singing, Glorious things of thee are spoken, science city of our God. And they look up on the hill and there's Stonewall Jackson sitting there. He stayed up all night so that his men could sleep. That's the kind of person he was, you know. Those men were very loyal to him, but killed by friendly fire. And uh, last thing he said is he passed from this life. Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Now, road to Gettysburg. Meade, General Meade is appointed to replace Hooker. Hooker said this, I just lost confidence in Joe Hooker. Meade didn't say this, Grant didn't say this, Lincoln didn't say this, Hooker said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was talking about himself. Well, think about this, okay? You know, if you're playing on a team and you have some other team members, maybe you don't have complete confidence in them, you have to work harder. Yeah. But if you don't have confidence in you, 
Some of fun, you know. <laughs> what can you do? You have to have the belief that what, what you're doing is going to work, and somehow, if you keep trying, you're going to you're going to succeed. Okay. The South was defeated at Gettysburg. Now, I went to Gettysburg, and Gettysburg, you know, when you hear about it, it's you hear about a battle or you read about it in a book, you know, you kind of think this is just the way it turned out. But when you go there, you stand on that hill and see, you see what they call Pickett's Charge. It's like, what in the world were they thinking, you know? Charging up that hill and they just got, the Southerners, the Confederates just got bombarded from the North and uh, it was a terrible defeat. But Lincoln gave his Gettysburg Address. How many of you read the Gettysburg Address? Four score and seven years ago our fathers brought upon this continent a new nation. You read it? This is what he says in the Gettysburg Address. The world will little note or long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. Well, the irony of history is that it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> in America, you know, nobody knows what actually happened there, but they all memorized the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> Everybody remembers what he said. <laughs> if you say Gettysburg in America, they think the Gettysburg Address, you know. Think about what he said, not about what actually happened. But it was a very important battle. I went to that battle, and I hired a tour guide and went around it. Uh, it was really, I would say, probably the main turning point of the war. But Meade made the same mistake as McClellan. Failure to press your advantage. We don't. We'll never know. But perhaps the war would not have been, would have been much shorter if Meade had pursued Lee. Now Meade sent a letter. He said, "We're going to keep going till we drive those invaders from our soil." And this really bothered Lincoln. Now think about this, okay? The invader was the North, because they're going to the South and they're saying, "You must be part of this country, right?" So when Lincoln saw that the northern officers were starting to think of the south as invaders. The south weren't interested in taking the north, they're just interested in preserving their their enclave in the south. So when Lincoln saw this he said, that's all? We don't just want them to not invade us, we want to bring them back into the Union. So there's a division of mentality in America at this time. Lincoln really wanted to preserve the Union, but a lot of people were thinking, well, let them have their states, you know, as long as they don't bother us. It's very different from China. Can you imagine in China if a military officer in the People's Liberation Army said, oh, we're so great, we kept Taiwan from invading us? They'd probably be fired. <laughs> the people would say, no, that's not great. We want to all be one country, right? The, the, there's an almost universal consensus in China, but not in America. There was a lot of confusion about this. But there were three, three particular men who had a very, very clear uh, perspective on this issue. And uh, they were Abraham Lincoln, of course, and then General Grant and General Sherman. Now, General Grant is interesting. He has the unique distinction of having failed at everything he did <laughs> except commanding the Union Army. Everything. Before the Civil War he was selling firewood in the streets of St. Louis to keep from starving. 
He couldn't keep any job. He's supposed to be a tanner and take over his father's business. He failed at that. He went to West Point, you know, he managed to graduate. Then he became an officer and he got out in the West and he was very homesick and, you know, bored and he started to drink a lot and he said, I can't do this and he quit, failed at that. So he tried to start business, failed at that. He failed at everything. He was a perfect failure. <laughs> he never succeeded at anything. And after the Civil War, they made him president. And he wasn't very good at that either. He was a nice guy, but you know, he had people he appointed who were very corrupt. And he didn't know how to control them. But when he was commanding an army, he was awesome. Because he wouldn't give up. Very persistent. It's impossible to know what would happen in the Civil War if it wasn't for Ulysses Grant. He succeeded at one thing in his life. One and only one thing. <laughs> but it was an amazing thing. <laughs> so, Grant is made commander of all the Union forces in 1864. Sherman is made commander of the Army of the West. Grant heads down to Richmond, and Sherman heads for, to Atlanta. So we've got to take a look at the map here. And then Grant lost 7,000 men in less than an hour in Cold Harbor. You know, Grant was the type of people, the person he could order actions, even though he knew it was going to cost him. And in the case of Cold Harbor, he lost 7,000 men in less than an hour. That's terrible. And he acknowledged afterwards this was a mistake. But Lincoln didn't punish him for mistakes because he was more upset about officers who were afraid to do anything because they didn't want to make mistakes, right? Sometimes you make decisions that don't turn out right. Here's the other guy, William T. Sherman. William T. Sherman was uh, the Union officer who went through the South. And uh, you know, Lincoln had a reputation for, uh, Lincoln would, um, if, the, if a soldier deserted, they could be executed. It's against the law, you can't do that. And so, then their girlfriend or their wife or their mother would go to Washington, D.C. and go to the White House and have Lincoln sign a pardon so that their son or husband or whatever wouldn't be killed. So they asked Sherman, what do you do about this? And Sherman said, I shoot him first. <laughs> if you run away, you get shot. You can't desert. So one time Lincoln was visiting Sherman and uh, a young soldier said, Mr. Lincoln, Sherman said if I run away he'll shoot me. And Lincoln leaned over and he said, if I were you I wouldn't trust him. I know General Sherman, I think he might do it. <laughs> okay, he was absolutely committed to com restoring the South to the Union. That's one reason why Lincoln liked him. And his march through Georgia helped Lincoln get elected. Lincoln, you know, the president has to get elected every four years, right? Mm -hmm. And that came up in 1864, in the, right in the middle of a war. The first modern general. I just put this in as something he said many years later, in 1884. They asked him if he would run for president. He said, I will not accept if nominated and it will not serve if elected. <laughs> he hated politics. Which is interesting because his brother was a senator. 
Okay, so here's the south, here's the north, and you see these battles, Maryland, Antietam here, and uh, Pennsylvania, there's Gettysburg. So here they're fighting the south and the north are fighting along this line. The northern soldiers are fighting to protect their home area. Southerners are fighting to protect their home area. So you imagine if you're a soldier, a southern soldier, fighting against the north, you know, maybe you're a farmer from Georgia or something, you're fighting up here, and then here comes Sherman marching through Georgia and burning up your farm. It's very disheartening. So Sherman's action completely demoralized the South. What can you do? You're fighting to protect your home and your home is being destroyed. The army's in front of you, the army's in back of you. It's really frustrating. He marched all the way to Savannah, all the way to the sea. And even now today, you know, the Southerners, they really think, oh, that's not very polite. <laughs> He's not spoken of very highly. He destroyed a lot of property. But you know, if you compare what he did with what he could have done, then he looks better. Because he didn't hurt people. Now, you know, Gone with the Wind, they show some, some thing about the Northern Union soldier attacking women or something, but that's a novel. The Union soldiers, he had told them, you must not mistreat people. There's no instance in the Civil War of a Union soldier attacking, you know, raping a Southern woman or something. They, they destroyed property. They destroyed a lot of property. Somebody's burning your fields, you know, you don't feel good about that. And, uh, and Atlanta burned. And, you know, I mean, it was, there was a lot of destruction. He wanted to destroy their ability to make war. So was he a good guy or a bad guy? Well, the war was shorter because of him. No question about that. You're fighting the enemy to keep the enemy from coming, and the enemy's behind you, destroying your home. That's the situation they were facing. 13th Amendment, January 31st, 1865. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime where the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. That's right now toward the end of the, the Civil War. The election was in 1864, in the fall of 1864. And believe it or not, the Democratic Party, they actually had in their platform to give up the Civil War and uh, tell the South they can keep their slaves if they join the Union. Leave it to the Democrats to give up the struggle when the war is all but won. If you're not familiar with American politics, the Democrats are very strong on uh, taking care of poor people. Like in America, retired people, when you get to be 62, 66, or whatever, you get money from the government. The Democrats push that through. They have laws about minimum wage. Companies have to pay a minimum amount to workers. So Democrats are very strong on those issues, but they tend to be weak on moral issues like uh, slavery or abortion. Now I want to talk about historical revisionism. Historical revisionism is the rewriting of history to deny some event or motive, like denying the Holocaust, saying that you know the Jews weren't actually killed in Germany. There are Holocaust deniers in America. 
That's revisionist history. So there are two parallel examples of this, American Civil War and the Opium War. You see revisionist history going on. American, in America, some historians still trying to say that the Civil War was not about slavery. And uh, the Opium War, British historians saying that the Opium War was not about opium. It's the same. It's very interesting, that, that parallel. So here's the Civil War revisionism. I won't read all of this, but this is the key thing here. One of the most important of which is that war between the states was not a rebellion nor was its underlying cause to sustain slavery. That's nonsense. This is, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, inscribed on the Capitol in the state of Texas. Its underlying cause was to sustain slavery and, of course, it was a rebellion. That's revisionist history. Here's opium war revisionist history. Apart from the compensation claim for the confiscated supplies of the, the Treaty of Nanking, you know the Treaty of Nanking, right? 1842, contained no mention of opium and its terms showed once more that Britain's main objectives in China were freedom of trade and equality of status. That's what this historian is, is saying. Britain was just trying to have equality of status. But it's complete nonsense because the, look at this, apart from compensation claim for the confiscated supplies, that's the opium. You know, the Chinese minister confiscated opium from the British and destroyed it. And they said, you have to pay us for that. Well, that doesn't make sense. What is law enforcement? But, the, you know, law enforcement always destroys drugs, right? If you don't allow the law enforcement the, the power and the authority to destroy drugs, you cannot say that you're giving them the choice whether or not they want to have opium. So this statement is, is, is completely ridiculous. But, you know, you still have historians making these revisionist statements. And it's very interesting to me, I noticed that, that parallel between American history, American historians on the Civil War, and British historians on the Opium War. But Britain is a country with many diverse ideas. And even at that time, there were those who spoke against this. And one was William Gladstone. William Gladstone said, I am dread of the judgments of God upon England for our national iniquity towards China. He made that statement in 1840, and people said, oh, Gladstone, he's just crazy. But nobody knew at that time that he would one day be the leader of England. He was a great statesman. So throughout this injustice, there were people who spoke against it. But they had very little power, or not enough power, to prevent it. This is Lincoln's second inaugural. It has to be the shortest inaugural address in American history. So I'll read through this. As the second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. Then a statement somewhat in detail of a course to be pursued seemed fitting and proper. Now at the expiration of four years during which public declarations have been constantly called forth on every point and phase of the great contest which still absorbs the intention and engrosses the energies of the nation, little that is new could be presented. The progress of our arms upon which all else chiefly depends is as well known to the public as to myself, and it is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all. With high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it and all sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, 
Insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than to let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than to let it perish, and the war came. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered, that of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, and to all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said that judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, and to do all which may achieve a cherish and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And at the end here you see him talking about not only the soldiers but the soldiers' family. And by the way, you know, that's something that's often overlooked in war, right? The Vietnam War killed 60,000 American soldiers. The Civil War killed 600,000 American soldiers. But what about their family? These men go off to war and the wife is left alone. She's feeling this loneliness. She has to go through the daily process of doing her work and take care of the children. But her husband's away at the war. You know, it's a very painful thing. And uh, I can think of no better expression of this than the poem by uh, Lee Bai, which I think I've shared with you before, Song of an Autumn Midnight. You know that one? Oh, this is interesting, yeah. He, uh, a month later after this, 
he toured Richmond and uh, he actually walked into the Confederate White House and sat at the desk of Jefferson Davis. Okay, let's look at Levi's, uh, here's the Chinese version. You know this? Here's the English version. Song of an Autumn Midnight. A slip of the moon hangs over the capital. Ten thousand washing mallets are pounding and the autumn wind is blowing my heart forever and ever toward the Jade Pass. Oh, when will the Tartar troops be conquered and my husband come back from the long campaign? <laughs> You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure who translated this. I think this is Pound translated by Pound. Really? It was a lot of Ezra Pound? Yes. Really? That's, well, that's a good translation, isn't it? Sure. But you know, you see this, uh, the rich uh, imagery in this poem, right? First is the moon. The moon means somebody that I love is very far away. Right? And then the washing mallets are pounding, you know? Pounding clothes. You can feel this, the daily beat of life has to go on. You know, my husband is away, there's a war, and my heart is breaking, but I still have to get up in the morning and do the work and get food for the family. You know, there's a daily grind of life that has to continue, a daily beat of life that has to continue. But her heart is being blown toward the Jade Pass. Her work is here, but her heart is there. When will this battle be over? <laughs> really a very good uh, translation. This is Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. Amazing contrast. Lee, a very refined officer, and Grant, uh, he was wearing a private's uniform, basically a private's uniform with a general star on it. Not a really refined person, but very meeting in very congenial terms. And this is their correspondence. This is really interesting. Alright? U.S. Grant writes a letter to Lee. He says, the results of the, this is April 7th, 1865, the results of the last week must convince you of the hopelessness of further resistance on the part of the Army of Northern Virginia in this struggle. I feel that it is so and regard it as my duty to shift for myself the responsibility of any further effusion of blood by asking of you the surrender of that portion of the Confederate States Army known as the Army of Northern Virginia. Grant is saying, give it up. And Lee is in really bad shape. <laughs> they're, they're really devastated, but they're fighting. You know, they don't want to surrender. So Lee writes a letter to Grant. General, I have received your note of this date, though not entertaining the opinion you expressed of the hopelessness of further resistance, I reciprocate your desire to avoid useless effusion of blood, and therefore, before considering your proposition, ask the terms you will offer on condition of a surrender. Now, Grant, you know, at Donaldson, uh, which I didn't really go into too much, he, when he, at Donaldson, he, the officer asked him the same question, what are the terms? And Grant said, unconditional surrender. <laughs> so Lee is asking him the same question. And, uh, Grant says, your note of last evening uh, to mine on the same date, asking for the conditions in which I'll accept the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia, is just received. I would say that peace being my greatest desire, there is but one condition I would insist on, namely that the men and officers surrendered shall be disqualified from taking up arms against the government of the United States until properly exchanged. What this means is that if we take this army you surrendered, you are our prisoners. 
but we will be kind to you. Instead of putting these soldiers in the prison, we will let them go home if they don't fight against the United States. That's a statement of honor, right? They have to be under honor that they will not fight. Then they can go home to their families. Grant is trying to show kindness. Then Robert E. Lee says, I received at a late hour your note of today. Okay, I did not intend to propose the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia, but to ask the terms of your proposition. To be frank, I do not think the emergency has arisen to call for a surrender. But as the restoration of peace should be the sole object, I desire to know whether your proposals would lead to that end. So he said, I can't meet you with a view to surrender. But as far as your proposal may affect the Confederate States forces under my command, and tend to the restoration of peace, I should be pleased to meet you at 10 a.m. tomorrow. So he said, I'll meet you tomorrow, but I don't want to surrender. What is this? <laughs> so here's what Grant says. Your note of yesterday is received. I have not authority to treat on the subject of peace. The meeting proposed for 10 a.m. today could lead to no good. I will state, however, that I am equally desirous for peace. So he's saying, if you're not ready to surrender, there's no point in meeting. And then Lee knows it's all over. He has to surrender. He hated to surrender. But he has to. So he said, I received your note this morning on the picket line, whether I'd come to meet you and ascertain definitely what terms were embraced. I now ask an interview in accordance with the offer contained in your letter for that purpose. <sighs> that really hurt. <laughs> Yeah, you know, he was the guy who never wanted to fight against the Union. Just protect his home. But his home wasn't protected. I am at this writing about four miles west of Walker's Church and will push forward to the front of the purpose of meeting you. That's it. Now this is an unusual incident and uh, we got to rest through it because we're running out of time here, but uh, Robert Lincoln is the oldest son of President Lincoln, and he was almost killed. You know, he fell down between the, he was getting on a train, he fell down between the train and the platform. And a, a guy, a man, grabbed his coat collar and pulled him back up, saved his life. And this man was a very well-known actor, Shakespearean actor. He acted the role of Hamlet. His name was Edmund Booth. And uh, Edmund Booth was a supporter of the Union. But Edmund Booth had a younger brother named John. There's John Booth. And John Booth was a supporter of the Confederacy. And he hated to see the Confederacy surrender. So he was determined to kill Lincoln. And uh, Lincoln gave a speech supporting the right for slaves to vote. And John Booth is saying, the right for slaves to vote? <laughs> Slaves are like not really people, you know. That's the way they thought. And he uh, heard that there would be a play, so he prepared, I said we, he prepared, he prepared to assassinate Grant and Lincoln. But Grant decided not to attend the play. On the morning of the assassination, he said this, our cause being almost lost, something decisive and great must be done. He entered the box... Uh, this here is actually Lincoln's statement. 
when they told him, you know, he's going to go to the Ford Theater, he said, well, it's time to go. I don't really want to go, but uh, I guess I better. He wanted to stay home, and uh, he should have stayed home. <laughs> Booth entered the box and shot Lincoln and jumped to the stage and ran outside the horse. And he was pursued several days later. They actually, he was in a barn, he wouldn't surrender, so they burned the barn down. Here's the assassination of Lincoln. This is John Wilkes Booth entering the box at the Ford's Theater. Died at 7.22 a.m. on April 15, 1865. Listen to this, Manuel Bradfield. The expression immediately after death was purely negative, but in 15 minutes here came over his mouth, the nostrils and chin, a smile that seemed almost an effort of life. I had never seen upon the President's face an expression more genial and pleasing. According to Lincoln's secretary, John Hay, at the moment of Lincoln's death, a look of unspeakable peace came upon his worn features. Now, I want to just mention briefly some related issues, okay? The Underground Railroad, Reconstruction, 14th Amendment, the Gilded Age, that's the period following the Civil War, the Great Migration, six million people moving from the South to the North, the Civil Rights Movement, so I just want to go through these quickly and then I'll see if you have any questions. The Underground Railroad was a network of safe houses. They actually helped slaves to escape and go to the north. You know, if a slave escapes, what are they going to do? If they run along the road, someone's going to catch them. But they had certain people who were supporting them and those people would hide them in their house. And then they would travel at night. Many, many slaves escaped this way. First half of the 19th century, 100,000 slaves escaped this way. Obviously they had to have help. So there were people in the South who helped them escape. You go at night, then you come stay to this house during the day. Then at night you'd start traveling again. Then you go to this house during the day. Some of them got caught, but many of them got to the North. 100,000 escaped. First to the northern part of the United States and then to Canada. Harriet Tubman was one of the people who helped to uh, the slaves to escape. And it's interesting because now they're talking about putting Harriet Tubman on the currency. I think it's the $10 bill or $20 bill. I can't remember. This is Harriet Tubman. She helped many, many slaves to escape after she escaped herself. She didn't, and when she got to the north, she didn't stay in the north. She went back to the south and risked her life to bring others. Reconstruction is the rebuilding of the south. It's a long, painful period after the Civil War because some of the Northerns wanted to be kind to the South and some said, no, we should punish them for starting this war. That's Reconstruction. And the Ku Klux Klan. Have you heard of the Ku Klux Klan? Yes. Okay, so you know what that is. That started in the, the period after the Civil War. Fourteenth Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Now this is very interesting because they're having this argument in America right now. Should we allow these people to be citizens if their parents are illegal aliens? Donald Trump is saying no. People come to America, they just... There's companies in Shanghai that help you do it. <laughs> you take a tour to America, have a baby, the baby has a passport, right? So it's Roe v. Wade, the abortion decision is based on the 14th Amendment, and the gay marriage decision, uh, decision last summer is based on the 14th Amendment. So it's very important. But Donald Trump is saying, 
look at this. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. They're saying, oh, well, if they're illegal, they're not subject to the jurisdiction, so they shouldn't be citizens. So they're saying we should have the Supreme Court decide this. But they forgot the Supreme Court already decided this. Wong Kim Arp. He was from China. His parents were from China. He was born in the United States. So he went back to China. Then he was coming back to America, and they said, you can't come here, you're Chinese. He said, I was born here. They said, we don't care, you're not American. So he sued them. He took it to the Supreme Court. Here he is. And he took this case to the Supreme Court. You know, obviously some lawyers helped him. But the Supreme Court decided in his favor. The case of the United States against Wimbledon Kim Hart was decided in the United States Supreme Court yesterday. Justice Gray handing down the opinion of the court. The case was appealed by the United States from the District Court, the Northern District of California, and involved the citizenship of a person born in this country of Chinese parents, which had never hitherto been decided by the Supreme Court. Yesterday's decision will have the effect of confirming the citizenship of such persons. He just wanted to come home and back to America and get his stuff. He didn't stay in America. He eventually went back to China. But he definitely changed America because the Supreme Court made this decision. And the Gilded Age was a period of great economic growth. This, I don't want to talk about a lot because it's a whole different lecture, but uh, 3,500 of African Americans were lynched between 1882 and 1968. Do you know what a lynching is? Whole bunch of people get together, they grab a guy, put a rope around his neck, tie it to a tree, and hang him. It's terrible. What happened to the blacks in the South after the Civil War? They're supposed to be free, right? But the whites in the South were not acknowledging this freedom. So many, many blacks moved to the North. Six million blacks moved from the South to the North. Some of them had to escape because the boss didn't want them to go, you know. They weren't slaves, but they were paid very low wages, so they were like slaves. They were treated like slaves long after the Civil War. And I, I went to a church in uh, Portland, Oregon, where my daughter lives. It's a black church. And in this church, they have pictures of the church history. They actually show where the clan, the Ku Klux Klan, paid them. They used to live in a white community and actually said, if you move out of this white community, because we don't want any blacks here, we will pay you for the supplies to build your church. That was in Oregon. The Civil Rights Forum began movement began by reforms by, by Eisenhower and Johnson. Then Martin Luther King Jr. You've heard of Martin Luther King Jr., right? Yeah. And Malcolm X. Have you heard of Malcolm X? No. Yes. Mal Malcolm X you may not have heard of, but he's an important figure, actually, in the civil rights movement. And in some ways I identify with Malcolm X more. He was crazy, you know. He joined the black Muslims. Elijah Muhammad believed that white men was descended from Satan. So he started out very hateful, but he actually made a trip to Mecca. He wanted to be a real Muslim. And he realized when he got to Mecca, oh, there's people here, not just blacks, black people, white people. So his attitude changed. But I like him because Malcolm X understood that slavery and racism is not just ignorance, it's evil. And Black Lives Matter, that's the controversy that's happening today. Here's Martin Luther King Jr. And by the way, sometimes in China I hear people say Martin Luther. This is not Martin Luther. This is Martin Luther. Okay? 
Martin Luther lived 500 years ago. <laughs> and Martin Luther King Jr.'s father went and made a trip to Europe and he really liked Martin Luther, so he took this name. And then, so he called himself Martin Luther King and his son, Martin Luther King Jr. And there's Malcolm X. Uncle Tom's Cabin, I mentioned, Children of Pride, this is interesting. It's 1,500 pages of letters between the members of a Southern family. All just letters. So you just read one letter after another and you get a feeling of their thinking. Toward the end of the war, Lincoln uh, issues the Emancipation Proclamation, and this lady is talking about her slaves. She said, we raised them from when they were little, and now they just leave. Why would they just leave us? You know why? Because they're human beings. She said, we took care of them, but human beings don't want to be taken care of. Dogs want to be taken care of. If somebody says to you, you don't have to work, I'll put you in a cage and feed you every day, you never have to do any work. Will you like it? Human beings don't want to be taken care of. So that's a very, very useful book. Warmth of Other Sons. This uh, describes the Great Migration. And she takes, uh, what Isabel Workerson does is she takes three people and studies their life in very great detail. Very, very interesting. Autobiography Malcolm X. If you're interested in this period, I highly recommend that book. And Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Now, you know, I always hear people talking about his I have a dream speech, but I actually think this letter is, is better. And you can find this in 10 minutes on the internet. So read that. <clears throat> this is the conclusion. James R. Lowell. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet the truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong. Yet the scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Upon the throne be wrong. What throne is he talking about? He's not talking about the throne in England. He's not talking about the Qing Dynasty. He's talking about the White House. Because he wrote this during the Mexican War. And the Mexican War was, like the Opium War, it was an immoral war. So here's a question. How did America get California? Where did they get it? They got it from Mexico. How did they get it? They stole it. They started a war to take it. They stole California, they stole Arizona. So he's saying, wait, be patient, justice will come in the end. Where's the justice for California? Or Arizona? Well, America stole California and Arizona from the Mexicans, and now the Mexicans are taking it back. <laughs> so, questions? Okay, so we did have some questions. Uh, the audio wasn't very good, uh, because I had a digital audio recorder where I was, but there was no pickup mic uh, in the audience. But one young lady had uh, heard somewhere that Lincoln forgave Booth before he died. I don't know where that comes from, but uh, that, that couldn't have been. Lincoln would, did not, was not communicative after he was shot. He was shot at point-blank range, and the more likelihood is that he didn't know what hit him. But it's possible that he was conscious and semi-conscious, not able to communicate, but he never, he never said anything between the time that he was shot and the time that he died. 
And then another young man asked uh, about the effect of the Civil War, and I said, well, it changed the grammar of the English language. Before the Civil War, we would say, the United States are a great country. And after the Civil War, we say, the United States is a great country. So it resolved the, the question forever of whether this is one country or a bunch of countries. So actually, in today's uh, usage, the term United States is a misnomer. It's, a state means country. It's not really, it should be called United Provinces of America. States do not have really any, any, any real autonomy as individual entities, and recent Supreme Court decisions have shown that. Uh, the Roe v. Wade decision in 73 and the recent uh, gay marriage decision, I think at that time, uh, uh, 11 states had laws allowing for gay marriage, and the Supreme Court said all states had to allow it. So then you really don't have uh, much autonomy for individual states. Now, is that a good thing? Well, in terms of unifying the country, yeah, it, 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 it has seemed to be because it, it eliminated talk, any talk of, of secession. But now something different is happening. And ironically, in the 2016 election, we heard people like in California saying we should secede. So there's something going on in America that is very, very troubling. And as I said, the... Uh, Events in Charlottesville really woke me up to that, and I, I want to talk about that at some point. I, I don't want to get into it too much now, but uh, it, it the idea of tearing down statues, I'm not comfortable with that. But I need to turn that around in my mind a little more. So I may do a, do a, a podcast episode on that subject, but, but what I want to do next is a... Uh, I'm going to go back through the the, uh, the slides and fill in some details, but I'll do that in a separate episode because it's going to take a while, perhaps an hour or so. I don't know. I will do that, and then uh, I want to talk about Gone with the Wind because I read that book last summer. I was in a bookstore in in Kunming. I'm not in Beijing during the summer. It's really hot and sticky. So I was in the mountains, and I was in a little bookstore, and I saw Gone with the Wind, and I, you know, I don't, I don't really like novels. I'm not, <laughs> I'm always second guessing novelists. Would that really have happened? Uh, so I saw that book, and I said, Oh man, I didn't see that. Do I have to read that? Yes. So I, um, well, I'll pick it up and. Uh, and maybe take a look at it sometime. So I got back to my place where I was staying, and I, for some reason, spilled some water on my laptop, knocked out my computer. So guess what? I spent the summer reading Gone with the Wind. And now that I read it, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did. I, I've always thought it was not really relevant because it was written almost a hundred years after the Civil War. You know, Uncle Tom's Cabin was critical because Uncle Tom's Cabin really led to the Civil War. It was hugely influential. Uh, but Gone with the Wind was written long after the Civil War was ended. 
But you know, it, it really is uh, an important book because it gives the feeling of the South uh, and, you know, sort of the, uh, the sentiment of the Southerners, what it's like to be a Southerner. Uh, so, again, I, I have issues with novels because no, novelists take liberties that, you know, they're not, not quite so tightly bound by history. So I'm always second-guessing them, but uh, I, I'm going to talk about that at some point. That, I've got many pages of notes, and I haven't got them entered in my database yet, so when I get that done, I'll probably do a, an episode on, on Gone with the Wind also. Because, you know, it's, uh, as I, I mentioned it, I mentioned Gone with the Wind, but I was talking about the movie. There was a scene in there that I remember from the movie, but that's not in the book, and so... Uh, I want to talk about that. You know, we, we have a saying, you can't tell a book by its cover, but I got a new one for you. You can't tell a book by its movie because <laughs> the book is different from the movie. And uh, I'm not going to say much about the movie. I don't know. I may watch it again at some point, but I, I am going to talk about the book. But I think for now, we'll uh, we'll uh, close this out and then I'll create another episode. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the same slides and fill in the details not talk about every single slide but there are several of them that I do want to expand on because I just didn't get enough time to uh, to talk about that and I have <clears throat> some uh, more to buy, uh, to say about that uh, because I uh, I've read Gone with the Wind since I gave that lecture uh, so we'll uh, We'll say goodbye for now, and uh, and then I will come back with uh, next time with an episode uh, filling in the details of the slide presentation. Okay, thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is hosted online at beijingdiary.podbean.com. That's beijingdiary.podbean.com. <laughs>